It's been, uh, what, 25 years or more since I've been here. I was on faculty when it was OTS at the seminary, when Ian Rennie was dean. And uh, we're all older. Uh, most of us are grayer. Uh, and some of us are helping gravity uh, a little more. Uh, but I'm here working with the D-Min crew, and that's been a very good experience, at least for me. I can't speak for them. Uh, I was wandering around the building the other night uh, when I first arrived in my slippers, and uh, just trying to remember the layout of this place. And I got myself lost, uh, found myself over in the seminary building without recognizing that it was the seminary building. And Paul Bramer happened upon me, so I'm here today, thankfully, because of Paul Bramer's intervention. You never quite know what's going to happen to you when you get up in the morning. And in uh, Acts chapter 4, there's the interesting story of a man who, for much of his life, was brought to the beautiful gate and set down where he could earn a living by begging, begging for alms. And one afternoon, as people were passing by him going into the temple, he perhaps felt more than saw the shadow of uh, two men, in this case, walking past, automatically reaching up his hand, uh, expecting there to be some alms or some offering or some gift. And one of the men uh, said, um, we don't have silver or gold to give you. But Peter said, here, rise up and walk. And you know the rest of the story. He not only rose up and walked, but he leapt, he danced, he shouted. And it, he made such a ruckus that it drew the attention of the crowd. And the crowd then beginning to hear that this miracle happened in the name of Jesus, which then drew the attention of the religious authorities who were understandably upset that the person of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that they thought they had extinguished at the crucifixion, was now again being spoken of in the streets of Jerusalem. And so these religious rulers took Peter and John, took them aside, warned them, cautioned them, uh, do not speak in this name. And Peter, saying the verse that you know well, we can't help but speak in the name of Jesus, I'm paraphrasing slightly, in whose name would we speak? And when you think about that, you think of what courage, what bravery, uh, the, present, the clear presentation of the name of Jesus in the midst of opposition. Peter didn't get there automatically. And it helps sometimes to go back in a person's life and try to trace some of the growth edges and some of the decisions that are made along the way that get us to where we are now. Some of those decisions we, we regret. Some of those we are grateful for. But nonetheless, we are the sum total of the decisions and the behaviors along our life's pathway. And to accept that growth in many ways is a decision. So let's briefly trace some of those uh, points on a pathway, some of those decisions in Peter's life, and then that perhaps gives some insight to that incident in Acts chapter 4. 
uh, Andrew brings Simon, his brother, to Jesus, introduces them, come, meet the Messiah. Simon, who knows what he's feeling or thinking, follows his brother, and they are introduced. And again, you know the story, taking it from John's Gospel. And the New English Bible translates a little phrase of this, I think, uh, very poignantly. Uh, Jesus, looking him in the face, said, You are Simon. You will be called Peter, Cephas, the rock. Who knows what Peter thought or felt at that point? Was he confused? Was he embarrassed? Uh, were te the te was the temptation of self-importance beginning to creep into his system? We don't know. But the fact remains, Jesus looked him in the face and identified him as something, perhaps something different from the way he perceived himself. Simon, you will be called Peter Cephas the rock. Um, Simon begins a journey with Jesus. He makes that decision. He's intrigued enough. He enters into a walk. Uh, he follows Jesus around. He listens. He observes. He thinks clearly. Uh, Jesus was challenging some of the traditions that he had been brought up with. Um, and yet on, other, on the other side, Jesus seemed to be presenting himself as the Messiah that the Jews expected. And as Simon wandered with Jesus or walked with Jesus and participated with Jesus in many different events, no doubt, as with so many others at that time, looking carefully for any sign that this man is, in fact, the Messiah that we've expected for so long. But Simon's categories, in some respect, must have been shaken up uh, with the things that he heard Jesus say, the things that he saw Jesus do, touching a leper, for example, paying attention to the social outcasts, uh, challenging in some respect the teaching of the religious rulers. You would think that he would want them on his side. Uh, doing things that may be a more personal uh, situation. For example, uh, they're walking somewhere. Uh, Jesus is teaching something. Simon asks the question. Jesus turns around and says, are you still so dull? Don't you get it yet? Uh, maybe not atypical of the way some teachers respond to some students. Uh, but are you still so dull? Perhaps it's to his credit that Simon continued to walk. Uh, you can think of many other incidents in the life of Simon as he walks with Jesus and participates in the events surrounding Jesus' life and ministry. Think about many Sunday school lessons you've had or many occasions where you've just read through the Gospels. Sift them through your own mind. Uh, think about them. What might be the effect on Simon. Uh, in, in, in the parables interest me uh, sometimes as a teacher uh, because many times or sometimes Jesus would get right to the punchline and he'd just kind of get up and walk away. And in one instance uh, he does this and it is Simon who runs after him in effect and says, what did you mean by that? 
tell us what you meant by that. And Jesus, in this case, explains the story to him. So Simon is constant. Simon comes across as a man of action, yes. He comes across as an inquirer, yes. Uh, you get the sense that he's watching and listening, but they probably all were. Uh, Simon, of course, looms large in the story in Matthew, which is kind of like a continental divide in the Gospel of Matthew, around 16, 17, where prior to that chapter, Jesus never speaks of his death. After that chapter, it's constant. And at this point, you get that walking along the road and Jesus questioning, who, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? The responses of the disciples, you're this, you're that, you're the other. And then the very personal question, but who do you say that I am? And again, it is Simon, speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's made a decision. He's made a decision and he's putting a name on it and he's committing himself. You, at least he seems to be committing himself more than defining himself, defining a term. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not long after that, you know the story, uh, Jesus begins to speak of his eventual suffering and death. And it is Simon again who speaks up, perhaps emboldened by the fact that Jesus affirmed that flesh and blood hadn't revealed this truth to him but our Father in heaven. And Simon, having his theology all straight by now, of course, dares to speak up and rebukes Jesus. This won't happen to you. Again, you know the story. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You think not as God thinks. You're thinking as out of a human frame of reference. And again, we're not told how Simon responds to that. No doubt he was chagrined. Uh, just when you think you have all your theological P's and Q's in order, another teacher shows up and shows you where you've missed something or something happens in your life that shows you you've missed something. So something must have been happening in Simon's heart and mind just at that point. But again, we're not really sure what. Uh, Simon continues to walk, 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 walk. And we get near the end of this whole journey. And we're in the, uh, the upper room. And John's gospel is very interesting at this point, where uh, there's the ritual celebration of the Passover. Uh, probably a number of people there of mixed ages. There are probably children there. It was customary at the Passover for there to be children, and children had a part to play in the Passover celebration. But Simon, among others, is, is watching Jesus. He's observing Jesus, and there's something wrong, and he signals to uh, John, find out what's going on, what's happening, what's wrong. And out of it uh, comes the, you know, the, the words he who dips the, the sop, he will betray me. And again, you're familiar with that language. And it is Simon who asserts, uh, this won't happen. Uh, Though all these forsake you, I never will. The, the dinner is finished, they go out. Jesus is arrested, taken to the upper room. Uh, or to the priest's room. Uh, Simon finds his way into the courtyard. Uh, Jesus 
prophecy is kind of hanging in the air from the upper room experience. Uh, uh, Jesus again looking Simon in the face, saying, I have prayed for you, Simon. Satan has desired you. I have prayed for you. He will sift you like wheat. When you have repented, when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. And that prophecy kind of hanging in the air as Simon, in some considerable confusion, makes his way into the courtyard. Similarly, the prophecy or the saying by Jesus, when the rooster crows three times, uh, you will have, or when the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. All of this kind of hanging in the air, probably on the edges of Simon's memory, because he wouldn't have any idea what it meant. It's just kind of hanging there. He's in the courtyard. You know the story. He's accosted. You are, the, you are from Galilee. You are one of his followers. And in cursing and uh, strong denial, Simon, three times, denying, denying, denying. And on the third time, the rooster crows. And Simon, the memory comes crashing into his mind and into his spirit. And he remembers. Luke is the only gospel that records something that must have been just a most incredible pain. Uh, just at the point of the rooster crowing, and the memories crashing together, Jesus is coming across the courtyard, and Luke records that their eyes meet, again, face upon face. And that memory of the denial, Jesus probably hearing it, certainly knowing of it, and Jesus taken away to his death, and Simon left with all of these horrible memories. In many ways, it's probably a good thing that the curtain falls at this point in every gospel. We're never really allowed to see the private pain or to read of the thoughts or the anguish of the men and women who had followed Jesus for a long enough time to fall in love and who had followed Jesus for long enough to come to the point where they were willing to make the affirmation, this man is the Messiah, this is the Christ. And certainly, if they couldn't go all that far, they had followed Jesus long enough, they had fallen in love enough to be willing to follow him wherever he would lead. But they didn't ever think, perhaps, that it would take them to the foot of a cross. And, you know, they, many of them witnessed it, they saw it, whether they did it from behind pillars uh, or were actually there at the foot of the cross listening and hearing. Uh, but can you imagine the anguish that all of them must have experienced? And think of Simon in this case, since he's the focus of our story and the decisions that come into our lives at points such as this. What does he do? We're not told. We don't know. Uh, after he stumbles out of the courtyard, weeping bitterly, the gospel tells us, where does he go? Uh, does he remember the upper room where he said, though all these forsake you, though all these betray you, I never will. 
does he remember the words of Jesus? Satan has asked me for you that he might sift you like wheat. What does that do to a person? Does he see in the roadway some of the people that Jesus touched? Uh, is he angry? What a loss, what a waste of a life. Does he feel guilty? We're not told. The next glimpse we have of, G of uh, Simon is in this boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. And one of them, John, recognizes Jesus' figure in the breaking of the dawn on the shore. And he says, it is the Lord. Who is it, however, who leaps out of the boat and splashes his way to shore? Simon. And as Simon drags himself out of the water, dripping, and makes his way up to where Jesus is, try to imagine what that would have been like for you. You've been through this experience of denial with cursing. Um, not only did you do it, but Jesus knew you were going to do it. Somehow that makes it worse. Um, now you've, you haven't had a chance to this point, really, to fix this. Uh, it's still kind of hanging in the air between you. Uh, what can you say that will be a sufficient enough apology? I'm sorry. Doesn't quite cut it. When I lived in Winnipeg as a very young person, I got the keys to my dad's 1958 Chevy. Um, my father was a first-class machinist. He loved the feel of metal. It was living flesh to him. And his cars were treasured commodities. They weren't commodities. They were his children. And for him to hand me the keys to the car so that I could drive a group of young people to Portage La Prairie for a, a, a youth meeting was, must have been, as I look back on it now, unbelievably difficult. We drove to the island, did our thing, piled back in. If you know the island out by Portage La Prairie, lots of trees. I forgot the back door was open. Uh, backed up, and my memory is that I ripped the door right off the back of the car. It probably was just a slight dent, but my memory today is that I ripped it right off, and there's this gaping hole in the side of the car, and we're driving back to Winnipeg with the door rattling in the trunk, a ever constant reminder of what I'm about to experience. Letting my friends out one by one, see you tomorrow, maybe. Uh, <laughs> good luck. Um, uh, no words of we'll be praying for you because they know what the outcome was. Uh, and I came around into our street to the driveway and my father had this habit that when we were out, his two daughters, when we were out, when we came back, he would come out of the house, no matter what time of the day it was or night, he'd come out of the house to greet us. Now he probably had a lot of his own reasons for doing that, but, you know, we always thought it was a nice thing that Dad would come out to welcome us home. It was just kind of nice. In this case, 
I was wishing, don't come out, you know, be unconscious, be dead, be something. Just, I don't want to see you. And I was feeling so badly because I, I knew, I knew what the, that car meant to him. And I knew um, that there was nothing I could do to make up for this wound. What could I say? There's nothing I could say, nothing I could do. And the only thing I could think was, Dad, just take the crowbar and pound me into the asphalt. You know, that's the only thing that I can think of that will help me feel that I've suffered enough for what I've done to you. There's no suffering that I could endure that would make up for what I have, for the, for the thing that I have done. And my father stood there for what felt like six years, looking at the side of this car. And then he turned to me and he said, was anybody hurt? And not yet, but no. <laughs> I said, no, nobody was hurt. And then he said, we can get it fixed. And he turned around and walked into the house. And what he did, and I didn't realize the um, importance of this for many years as I got older. What he did was he made it possible for me to deal with this horrible thing that I had done. He opened a pathway for me to come back into relationship with him. And I think about that often when I think about this incident on the beach. That Jesus, you know, the three, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Jesus, in a sense, whatever else he's doing, he's making a way for Peter to come back. And at the very last uh, question, Simon responds very strongly, it seems. You know that I love you. And for Jesus to give Simon the opportunity to speak his heart was very important at that point in Simon's life. And it's very interesting, you know, the feed my sheep at the very end, but it's very interesting when Simon steps out of the pages of the Gospels and steps into the pages of the book of Acts, he becomes Peter, the rock, a leader of the early church, a definer of the movement, a man who stood courageously. We cannot speak in any other name. No denial there. Never in Simon Peter's life, after that incident, did Simon Peter ever deny the Lord, ever. It was a life-changing moment, and the decisions he made in relation to that moment shaped the rest of his life and his ministry. We don't know really what is going to happen as a result of the decisions we make at any given point. But it is important that we pay attention to the events in our lives and the kind of decisions that they call from us. It's important that we think about that because they do have an impact. And many decisions, perhaps without us realizing it, 
are more, are very significant decisions. We make pathways for others in much the same way, I think. And what Simon learned that day on the beach, uh, you're, all of us are going to be on a beach at some point or other in our lives where we need to confront Jesus in some very personal ways. If you haven't already been on a beach, you will be. And it will be a painful experience. But the confidence that I have if, as we crawl onto that beach and, and stand or sit or kneel uh, before the Lord is his heart's disposition is always to help us find a way back. Always. Let me pray. The words of Zephaniah in chapter 3. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing.